0: We just finished chapter 7, chapter 7 of Hebrews, and as we look back and consider this, Hebrew writer makes the point that Christ is their high priest, seated at the right hand of God. He's worthy to be called a mediator of a better covenant. what we're going to see here in chapter 8. What I want us to think about here as we look back, and I want to kind of tie in a few chapters as we open up with chapter 8. I want us to think about, as we look at chapter 5, 7, and 8, chapter 5, the writer dealt with the evidence that Christ is qualified to be a high priest. And it goes through the qualifications of, Levitical, of, of a high priest. And the Levitical high priest, and we looked at the high priest that would have qualified Jesus to be that even superior high priest. Chapter 7, the writer shows that the priesthood of Christ is superior superior to the Levitical priesthood. And what's the writer's point in chapter 8 this morning? He makes a couple of points. And I think want us to kind of think about this as we consider, again, Christ being the high priest of the true tabernacle. Think about the fact that uh, verses 1 through 5, um, verses 1 through 5 of Hebrews, he's a priest in heaven, not on the earth. We're going to see why that's, uh, why that's significant. Uh, again, as he is, again, as, and I, I've tried to bring this out as we consider what these readers challenge that's before them, what this writer is trying to get across to them, the things that he's trying to do to stabilize their thoughts, to reassure them, give them exhortation and build up as they consider either falling back, either because of persecution and falling back, or, uh, you know, not staying true to this new Christian dispensation. Going back to Judaism, going back to the old law, and all the way through Hebrews up to where we are right now, he brings out various points, various things that should solidify and should continue to solidify their thoughts, their vision, the things that they know, even from the old law standpoint, as to why this new law is superior, and why stay the course in that realm? Why they should do that? First point, he's a priest in heaven. Jesus is a priest in heaven, not on the earth. He's priest in heaven because he's not qualified to be what? Priest where? On earth, absolutely. He couldn't be priest on earth. Why couldn't he be? Yeah, tribe, Judah. Not a Levite. He couldn't be a priest. His initial argument, I believe, in chapter 8 is better priesthood because it's in heaven. And if it were on earth, couldn't be a priest. The second point I think he brings out in this this study from verses uh, 6 through 13 is he's a mediator of what? Better covenant. Better covenant. And we're going to get into that. We're going to get into that shortly. I want us to think again about chapter seven and verse twelve. We brought out the fact that there's a change in the priesthood, and when that occurred, when there was a change in the priesthood, what was necessary? What had to happen? Change in the law. So I think what we see here, as we look at chapter eight, we see that. That change in the law brings about a change in what? What was Moses under the old law? To God. Law-giver. Lawgiver. What else did Moses do for the people? Intercede. Intercede. That's what I'm looking for. When I think about there's that law change, there's a mediator change. There's going to be a mediator change. And there's, uh, when we think about that, was Moses a mediator between the people and God? He was. Under this new covenant, who's the mediator? Jesus Christ. So I think here, again, and just, just continue to think back to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 12, thinking about that change in the priesthood, it's necessity for changing the law. So, what I want us to look at here for these for these first five verses, Christ, the, the high priest of the true tabernacle, a better priest ministry. We also think about if Christ was on earth, he couldn't be priest. We're going to look at some points with regard regard to that. So, as we look at verse one, and we consider. If I get to the right chapter. Now the point in what we are saying is this. If somebody were to say that to you about anything, something that you've been talking about, maybe you've spent some time with somebody over a particular subject or a particular matter, and someone would say to you, Now the point in what we are saying is this. What do they mean by that? What's this writer you think bringing out right here when he says that here in verse one of chapter eight? This is the key idea. Okay, this is the key idea. This is something that is, I believe when we think about, this is the chief point. This is the chief chief point that I want to bring out. American Standard Version uses chief point main point. And I think when we see this, we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand in the throne of the majesty in heaven. A minister in holy places in the true tent, the true tent, the true tabernacle that the Lord set up, not man. So I think when we think here seated at the right hand of God, when we hear that term, what would come to your mind when you think about Jesus being seated at the right hand of God. Pretty Access. prominent position? Access. Access. What priest on earth could be said about that? When we think about that term. Here's earthly priests, the Arianic, priest, the Arianic priesthood. We think about that. No Arianic priest ever sat at the right hand of God. Think about honor. Think about exalted. His name is exalted. Think about an exalted position, position of power. His pri- so if we were to say that, if he's sitting at the right hand of God, and this is our Christ being the high priest of the true tabernacle, what could we say how can we sum that up? His priesthood is where? In heaven. heaven. That's right. Yes, sir. One thing that just dawned on me, the the priests in the Old Testament under the Aaronic priesthood, they could only come into God's presence if they were the one once a year. Jesus is there 24-7, if you will. Yeah. And that's another thing that jumps out at me is how much better he is once a year, if they're lucky, versus all the time. It's so it, it, it just now dawned on me. Yeah, it's incredible. Absolutely. Good point. A minister in the holy places, verse 2, in the true tent in the Lord that had set up, not man. You think about this, he's worthy because he's the minister of the true sanctuary, the true tabernacle. Think about the most holy place being behind the veil, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19. And we think about the true tabernacle. Think about not the copy that's erected by Moses, which is in heaven. You know, again, it's. I think as, you, as we read through this and we recognize what this writer is trying to bring out to these readers, to these Hebrew Christians, they could see and know, they could visualize, and they could understand without question. They could understand what he's talking about when he talks about that holy place. And, and as Sam brought out, that priest that would go there and would be in the presence of God a special way, could only do that once, could only do that once a year. Since Christ is a high priest, it's necessary for him to offer sacrifices as well. And I think that's what the readers would have understood, that he offered himself as a sacrifice, but probably did not understand the full significance of that point. Again, as I think back to Hebrews chapter 5, they weren't able to handle a lot of things. That, you know, as he brought out their priest, his priesthood, Christ's priesthood under the order of Melchizedek. And then what did he do? He got off and... And just went a completely different direction with regard to where they stood in their in their in their belief system in their faith in what they knew and what they understood uh, their their so to speak intellect as to what they could what they could know and remember and the things that they hadn 't grown in to where they could understand this, so he spent that time in chapter six. he spent that time again trying to bring them and show them. The importance of not just staying with those basic foundation principles, but what? Getting out of that and moving forward to the meat. Moving forward out of that to the more mature context. And I think when we think about something, I, 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 you know, as I, again, study and read, read through this. Because Christ was not from the tribe of Levi, he could not serve as a high priest while here on this earth as a man. But he's from another tribe, and what's that tribe? I heard something. Judah, and after what? Order of Melchizedek, and, we, and again, again bringing that point, um, he can serve as a high priest from heaven, where he is now enthroned. So, you know, I think when we think if Christ was on earth, he couldn't be priest. There are priests and Levites who offer gifts and sacrifices according to the law. Verse 4 brings out, the Hebrew writer directs and speaks of the old covenant. Speaks of the old covenant in verse 4. Now, if he were here on earth, he would not be priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Verse 5, they serve a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, the sanctuary, the tabernacle, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So again, when we think about what he tries to get across to them right now, he speaks of this old covenant serving as a shadow, a copy, or a pattern of the heavenly things, the true tabernacle. So I want us to spend just a second just to think about that term, that terminology. If we think about something serving as a shadow, you know, I, I, I can look down this hallway right now and just because of the way the light is, I can see the pews that are out in the hall, that are kind of out in this, in this carpet area from the way the light is. If you're out in the bright sun and You're standing on a sidewalk, depending on how the light hits you, depending on how you stand there, what do you see from your person? A shadow. So when we think about a shadow, how could we bring it home, so to speak, to think about the shadow of this old covenant? When he talks about that, how could we think about this old covenant serving as a shadow or a copy? In your own words, what do you think? sorry? In its likeness. likeness? Okay, it's not the real thing. I want to kind of maybe give it, maybe give an example like this. If you were to think about, say, building a new house, and some of you in here know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, you've got a pattern or a blueprint. You've got something that you've designed, maybe an architect, has helped you put that together. And you think about that, you think about that that pattern, and then once you get that established, what did you do after that? Well, maybe you want to create a model, maybe you want to create something that was gonna be just like that pattern. But eventually, you're gonna get with a contractor, and you're gonna say to that contractor, you know, here's my pattern, but I want you to build my house any way you want to. Is that, what, is that what you, Brian, is that what you would have said to a contractor? Jason, is that what you would have said to a contractor? What, why not? What are you expecting? You have a pattern. Maybe architect helped you put that together. What are you expecting that, that, that contractor to do? Follow, that. Follow it. Follow it. So I think what, what, what I think, when I look at, when I think about the, the, these, these people of old under the, this old covenant, when I think about what he wants of them and what he expects of them and, and, and what he's sharing with them as far as this old covenant, how it serves this shadow or this copy. You know, sometimes I've heard it phrased that the old law, you know, now, you know, the new law, the new covenant is like compared to the old. When really, I think when we think about that, the old covenant is that copy is, is here we can go back and look to see what was coming, to see what was to come to fruition. And I think, it's, I think it's important that, and that's what I think he's trying to bring out to them is that this pattern is important and this pattern is the true, this is the true tabernacle. You think about where we are today. Were those people in the true tabernacle? Back in the, under this old covenant, were they in the true tabernacle? No. What are we in today as Christians? Are we in the true tabernacle today? We are. Absolutely, we are. Think about where that's come and where all this, and again, that progression of how that change came about. Again, changing the priesthood, changing the law, changing the mediator. So we've got, as we think about that, these people, this, this, there ought to be some aha moments coming for, for, for these readers, for these people. And I think some of that, I think would, would, have, would happen. And, then, and these priests are a type and shadow of Christ's priesthood. When we think about that, again, these priests, they can relate to what those priests are doing and the things that they're responsible for. They can look back and they can see that. What I think is going to, that we're going to see here as the rest of this comes out from verses 6 through 13 is that verse 6 says, But as it is, Christ has obtained ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant. He mediates, he mediates, his, his mediate is better since it's enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, and I'm going to stop right here before I get into Jeremiah, the writings that he brings out here of Jeremiah. Again, as we brought out in, verse, in chapter 7, verse 12, because the change in the priesthood, there's necessity. There had to be a change in law. When we think about verse eight, this change in mediator. What is a what is a mediator? When you think of a mediator, a I'm sorry, a go-between. A go-between okay. When we think about a go-between. First Timothy two verse five brings that out about Jesus Christ being a go-between. Between God and men. Who's the mediator right now? Again, who was that mediator of the old covenant? Again, I think Exodus chapter 20, verse 19 talks about, and we can see Moses was. Christ is a mediator and the mediator of a better covenant, which is established, as we see here, in looking at verse 6, it's enacted on better promises. This covenant, it's a Better covenant established on better promises. What do we th- what, when, when you think about better promises, what comes to your mind when you think about that? When you think about, again, consider what they had and the promises that were made under the old law, but in this context, what makes, and what, what brings, what should come to our mind with regard to better promises? From chapter four. Okay, the rest from chapter 4. We're, we're going to get into that near the end of this study, I hope, this morning. What else? Forgiveness of sin. Forgiveness of sin. Okay. And again, Sam brought and, and made illustration of this earlier, that uh, under the old covenant, the sins were remembered every year. And chapter 10, we're going to get into that soon, and that will tell us this even more, even more so. Under the new covenant of Christ, the sins and iniquities are forgiven forever. And we're going to see that shortly as well. And I think what's something, I think this is a better promise. The promise is better in content. What it offers and what it has to offer, not that it's more, not that I feel like, not that it's more reliable. Um, I want you to think about something for a second. Um, Under the old law, it was just as reliable as under the new covenant. You agree or disagree? The purpose of the old law, purpose of the old covenant, and that's been that's instituted. We talked about that. That's what these people that he's writing to have come out of. They're in the Christian Christian dispensation. They're in the new law. They're in the new covenant. But when they're trying to think about going back to that or embracing that again, and he brings out all of these better, 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 better. And he brings out the superiority constantly of Jesus Christ. Was the old law, was the old covenant, once you think about this for a minute, was the old covenant perfect? I hear a lot of notes. I believe it was and here's why, it was perfect for that time for those people at that time. Tell me what God does, what God institutes that's not perfect. Tell me what that is. Yeah, that's like saying, you know, I, I may have made a, I may have baked a cake, or I may have made built something, and it's terrible, and I need to do it over again. Did God need to do that over again? Think about what it's used for, what it was used for, and what its purpose was. In what it was doing at that time, in what it was doing at that time, don't misunderstand me, please. It was perfect in what it, in what it did. It, was, it, was, it took care of and satisfied what God expected it to do. Think about when we read Ephesians and we think about from back before the beginning of time, what was his mission? What did his plan have all the way back? That's right. So when you think about this this line, you think about this old covenant and what's being introduced now to tell these people, to tell us, to prove to us. I'm I'm not talking about my word, your word, this writer's word, somebody else's word. He continually goes back and utilizes these quotes. We've talked about that from from Psalms, we talk about that from Jeremiah like we are here in chapter eight. What's the the point of that? He's going back to show that validity, the evidentiary value that lives there, that can't be refuted. That old covenant was perfect for its use and for its purpose, but there was something better, even more superior to that, that he's introducing in Jesus Christ. Jason, I know you've had your hand up. Did you get rid of your mic? Yeah, I got rid of it. Okay. You moved on. Okay. I just wanted to make sure I didn't I didn't cover over if there was something you wanted to say. Was there anybody else that had any comments or questions? I want to take a break here for a second. Okay. So I think, I mean, that's the one thing I think sometimes we, we get, I think, sometimes caught up in the fact that this this old law, you know, and, and he's going to bring this out. Let, let's just continue this. Let's continue this where we are right now. And I think that's one of the things I think, it'll, I, think I hope it will bring, bring it home. When we think about the first and the second, um, if we look at w- what he's bringing out here, when we think about Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, he quotes from this, looking at this very subject right now. If there had been no fault with the first, and I say fault, not because God made things in there, but this is what the writer brings out in the fact that there would be no need for a second. In other words, if that first, first covenant, if that first one had been just what was needed, but let's think about that for a minute. What does that mean? When we think about there was, a, there was fault with the first, not saying necessarily it's messed up, not necessarily, you know, there's, there's a serious issue but it wasn't designed to bring forgiveness. We think about Galatians chapter three, and it argues for that. Leviticus 18, verse five, and, and I want us to kind of think about this. Leviticus 18, verse five, considering salvation under the law, what did they have to do? It's brought out there. What did they have to do under the mosaic, under, the, under this, this, old, this old covenant? What was it necessary that, the, what did they have to do under the old law if they expected salvation? Need they needed to keep it perfectly. Now, did they do that? Who did? The only, the only one that I know that kept it perfectly was our Lord and Savior. If you kept the law flawlessly or perfectly, you would have had salvation. That's what I think he brings out. But nobody but Jesus did that. So I think as we look here in verse 8, finding fault with them, and and, and, and who's he talking about that? He finds fault with them when he says, who is them? The Israelites, yeah. Because they didn't keep the law, because they didn't continue in my covenant, the only way they could have salvation was to keep the law perfectly. They didn't do that. It was designed to bring salvation, but there was a need for, a, for something better. God had designed that from the beginning. God promised through Jeremiah, as we see this that's about to unfold here, God promised through, through Jeremiah a new covenant. And there are things, I think two things that we're going to see here as we look at this is the fact that in, in this better covenant, there's better promises. The fault with the first means there's need for a second. God promised through Jeremiah a new covenant. And what's, he's, what's gonna happen there under this new covenant? Gonna create a different people. Not like the rebellious fathers, as we see here, it's gonna go into verses, and, and I'm gonna just read these. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll establish a new covenant with the house of Israel. And with the house of Judah and like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day I took them out by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. So I showed, so I show no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel for after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach each one his neighbor, each one his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and will remember their sin no more. This is what he quotes, and again, this writer goes back and he quotes from Jeremiah, uh, it's Jeremiah thirty-one verses thirty-one through thirty-four, and you know I think as as we as we read this and we think about him, God, you know there being two things that are that we're seeing here with regard to this new covenant creates this this different people and offers complete forgiveness. Think about this: the house of Israel the house of Judah. All of God's people is what he says here. All of God's people versus this group of people. It's not like, it's like it's this new, it's new and it's, it's, it's you know, it's not like the covenant I made with their fathers. Think about that. It's new and it's not like this new covenant is what it's new. And it's not like it brings out that term. The covenant I made with their fathers. The new will be in their hearts. They will know God. Under the old, they're born Israelite. When you think about that, they are born Israelite. And in the family of God, they were taught in that, in that, under that, under the Israelite, they were taught to know God. Under the new, when you think about even in us today, we're taught the Lord, and now, once we accept and we are obedient to that, what do we, so to speak, become under? under covenant. Okay, under the covenant. But I, th- I think what, he's, what, he, what, what, I'm, what I see here, is I, as I look at verse 10, he'll make with the house of Israel, those days, declares the Lord, I'll put my laws in their minds. And then in verse 11, he talks about, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor, each one his brother, saying, know the Lord. Is that saying that they're, we're not to evangelize? We tell people, know the Lord. Is that what's coming out? Is that what he's saying here? Mitch? I think like what you're, what you're pointing out, Israel just as a whole might have been under the covenant of God, but there were a lot of people that didn't care. There were a lot of people that didn't want to follow the covenant of God, so they didn't they were still Israelites, still under that covenant. Um, and now what you have is, you know, you don't have leaders like Josiah having to force everyone to follow the law. What you're going to have now is a kingdom of individuals who want to follow the law and are doing that and are on their own. Individuals. Yeah. That's right. So I think, you know, again, under this new law, you know, we get taught the Lord. And then we, so to speak, become part of Israel. We become part of God's chosen people. I think it's, you know, and I think several contrasts in these verses. You know, one had faults, one didn't. You know, when we, when we think about it, one had faults, one, one wasn't able to bring them to where they needed to be. But at that time, that's what God expected. That's what God had put in place. Now, I think when we see, and and as we look at this, verse 12, he says, for I'll be merciful toward their iniquities. I'll be merciful toward their iniquities. And what's he saying in the latter part of that? And I'll remember their sins no more. You know, as as we we talked a little bit about this at the beginning of the class, um, you know, if if we read, well, let me me just roll over there and read it. Um, Hebrews 10, verse 3. But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. And we talked about that at the beginning of the class. Um, That's one one thing Sam brought out. When, When we think about this superiority or we think about this better covenant, I'll be merciful toward their iniquities and I'll remember their sin no more. When we think about sin that was remembered year after year, after year, and sin that was. I'm, I, you know, I'm going to use terms, and and you may not, you may not like this term, or, but you know, it's it's like, I've heard them say, you know, it's rolled forward, or it's kept at bay, or it's been held hostage, or uh, you know, it's still captive. And we, I think, when we think about those words and that terminology, we can recognize under the old covenant, was that sin blotted out and forgiven? Was it forgotten completely? It wasn't, that's right, it wasn't. But under this new promise, God will remember their sin no more. He'll forgive and forget their sins. And I think about that, you know, again, thinking back up, you know, to what we just read in verse six, thinking about that promise. How an incredible, what an incredible promise that is. That whatever you do, whatever you do, if you've sinned and you make correction of that, you repent of that, God is willing to forgive you and 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 blot it out. I think when we think about the Hebrew writer quoting from Jeremiah 31 uh, to demonstrate the fulfillment of this prophecy, you know it should be, I think, to these readers, earth-shattering, for them to really contemplate what he's trying to bring across to them and trying to bring home. They would be familiar with these Old Testament scriptures. And now they can have a complete confidence in hearing what he's telling them, knowing that this new covenant's from God. And he says here as, as well, In verse 13, and speaking of this new covenant, he makes the first obsolete. What's the word obsolete mean? I'm sorry. Okay, no longer valid. The old is obsolete. Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, makes the first obsolete. What is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. I would say there may have been some to hear that may have been challenging for them to think about what they've been under, what they've been taught, what they are used to, what's ingrained in them, what is part of them. And yet to be able to move and to shift into this Christian dispensation under this new covenant, I'm sure for some it was very difficult. And that's why I think there may have been those that could easily think about, you know, I, I got to go back. I got to go back. And he's saying, stay the course. Don't do that. You're going back to something that's, that's gone. And what do we read right here? It's obsolete. There's no value in that. As we wrap up this morning, I want i have showed this slide, I've showed this slide a little different through the study, and normally some quotes that we find in this study from in Hebrews. But I want you to think about—you look back at chapters three and four. Joshua again led the people, and, and, and Sam brought that up when he's, we talked about the being in the rest. Joshua led the Canaan into rest. And I want you to think about when he brought out and the reader brings out, the writer brings out Psalms 95, that was spoken after that occurred, Psalms 95. And what was still to come? The promised rest that's still not obtained. That promised rest may be through being a coming a Christian, but ultimately that promised rest of what? Eternal life. Chapters five and seven, he brought out the institution of Levitical priesthood. And went to and, and referenced Psalms 110 verse 4, and again, what had not happened yet. And we thinking about this, spoken after in Psalms 110 verse 4, a change in the priesthood. Jesus was going to be that change. Was going to be again thinking about the priesthood changing, the law changing, the mediator changing, a covenant's going to ch- new covenant's going to change. There's a change in the priesthood. And today, and, to, and today as we spoke from chapter eight. There was established, the old old covenant was established. And what he does in Jeremiah 31, which is after that uh, that establishment of the old covenant, this first covenant, looks at Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, and he says what? After that, there's still to come a new covenant. I think that's just interesting to me when I think about where we've been through these chapters and the things that he's telling them, okay, you look at this, it's already here but you contemplate what's still to come. And he brings that fulfillment out as he shares that with them through over here, still to come, the rest, the change in priesthood, a new covenant. To me, that ought to be something that these readers, as they look at that and they contemplate, should be like, we got to stay the course. We got to, you know, what are we thinking here? But obviously he's writing this letter because That's the issue that's at hand, is that there are individuals who um, are contemplating maybe falling back into Judaism and not continuing to embrace Christ being the uh, mediator of a better tabernacle, of a a better covenant. Any comments or questions before we close? I appreciate your thoughts and your comments this morning. Chapter 9 next week. Lord willing.